You are listening to the Trinity Presbyterian Church Podcast from Petaluma, California. Here is this week's sermon. Come to life and call Dr. Stelfo. It's good to be with you all, um, both this morning and this evening. I bring you greetings from SDB. I know many of you don't know the Saints there, but one of my great joys in being able to travel now this side of COVID is worshiping the saints all over and, and being reminded of the great teaching of the communion of saints that it, it truly is wonderful to worship with like-minded brothers and sisters in different parts of the country. And so it's good to be with you all on this March day. Uh, so I was thinking about what to bring on Sunday morning in light of first committing to Sunday evening about the influence of the Psalter on Luther's breakthrough, uh, so to speak. Um, I thought, well, uh, let's meditate on Psalm 1 and 2, which always elicits a lot of curiosity from people, like, oh, you're going to do two Psalms? And, and um, so don't worry, I don't promise, I, I promise not to be too long-winded in uh, those two Psalms. And, um, um, but I'd like you to think about the best path to God as we turn to these uh, songs. But before we do so, it's appropriate since we'll be turning to God's Word and we ask His uh, blessing uh, on our minds and hearts. So, will you pray with me? Father, we plead with you once again uh, that you would grant us that posture and attitude without which no one can understand truth uh, in any aspect, but especially from your Holy Word. Scriptures, since we pray that you would grant that reverence and humility, Lord, so that we may uh, understand what you have for us this morning. Um, Father, uh, do this. We do uh, pray because we need your word desperately. And uh, as you do so, we'll be careful that uh, the success that you grant or any apprehension thereof uh, would redound to the glory of Jesus, in whose name uh, we pray. Amen. So, first of all, we'll read Psalm 1 or 2. I'll be reading from the ESV, and, um, and then we'll launch into our meditation this morning on that. Uh, this is God's Word. Please give careful attention to it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked perish. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son today. I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Uh, in practice over the years, the Jewish community has always considered learning to be something sweet. Some of this they probably took from Proverbs 22.6, a familiar passage. Train a child, the verb there is chanok, uh, in the way he should go, and when he was old, he will not depart from it. In modern Hebrew, we see something similar, and the education is called, you can probably hear the similarity, chanok, and the educator is called a machanek. Now, through the centuries, the Jewish community has understood this word to be linked with a meaning having to do with rubbing something on the gums of small children. And perhaps the root comes uh, from the practice of the Arabs, where they would smear date juice on the gums of newborn children. Calvin even uh, noticed, a 16th century reformer, uh, the practice of rubbing uh, apple honey on toddlers' uh, gums during his day, similar to probably how parents uh, ameliorate the pain of teething among their children even this day uh, with other medicinal properties. Now this use of honey in Jewish education uh, can be seen in a practical a practice that was typical of the first day of school. So the student would come in to the yeshiva and they'd be given a small chalkboard. Some of you remember what those are, you know, green chalkboard, and you put them on the lap and, and then on that chalkboard would be written in Hebrew two verses uh, for the child to recite. First of all, Leviticus 1.1, 1, 1, and then Deuteronomy 33.4, and then the following sentence would also be written on there, the law shall be my calling. And then the teacher would read the passages, and then the student would recite the passage back to the teacher. And then honey would actually be spread on that chalkboard, the lap size chalkboard, uh, on the student's lap. And then the student would be encouraged. Don't your schools do this? <laughs> um, you have one college teacher in the room, doesn't you? Don't you do this when you're teaching your college students? Or, um, to lick the honey off the chalkboard and remember uh, Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 3. I'll refresh your memory. I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. Close quote. So obviously, the rabbis were very concerned to communicate to their students that there's something sweet about divine truth and about memorizing it and learning it. Well, so too, when we turn to the Psalter, we see a similar kind of impetus among these uh, editors that gathered together all these individual psalms to make the collection that we now call the Psalter. 
And some of you may be wondering why two psalms? He's going to ambitiously cover Psalm 1 and 2. Don't worry, even though you don't have a clock in the back, he's paying attention to the time. Um, but what I want you to think about is the following question that's set forth here at the beginning of our Psalter. And the question goes like this What is the best pathway to know and learn and become cordially attached to God? Is it study, as Psalm 1 would seem to indicate? Or is it more public acts of piety, like prayers and praising God, like Psalm 2, especially the king, uh, and praising him? So study, on the one hand, or prayer? Well, in the collection of the Psalms that make up the Psalter, there's actually good evidence, I won't go into the details, that Psalm 2 may have originally started our Psalter, and then Psalm 1 was later added in order to frame the entire Psalter, um, to kind of set our minds and prime our minds for how we ought to read uh, the Psalms. Citing just one piece of evidence, uh, Acts chapter 13.33 testifies to a pretty good manuscript where it says, and in Psalm 1, etc., 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 and guess what psalm is quoting at that point? It's actually quoting Psalm 2. Now this raises an interesting question. What did these ancient believing forefathers think was the best pathway to God? Was it study, on the one hand, as I mentioned, or was it prayer? Or stated another way, from a more rabbinic perspective, does God's revelation come through meditation on his word? as Psalm 1 would suggest? Or does God's revelation come to us in public act of piety, like we're engaging in this morning and praising God and listening to him uh, be uh, preached on this word and also receiving the visible signs and seals of the sacrament, more public acts of piety, if you will? Well, that's an interesting question, especially because Prayer is very important in the Psalter. Most of the Psalms in the Psalter are, in fact, prayers, either corporate or individual or a combination of both, if you look at the pronouns carefully. However, if it's true, let's just say for argument's sake, it is true that Psalm 1 was put at the front of the Psalter to be a kind of framing device to prime our minds how to think about the best path to God. Um, and it's worth noting that Psalm 1 is not prayer, nor a prayer. In fact, if you look at it carefully, you see God is never even addressed in Psalm 1. So that raises a very interesting question about, is it study, or is it prayer that's the best path to God? Let's look at the details of Psalm 1 and 2 first. So first of all, Psalm 1, notice very clearly on the surface, the doctrine, so to speak, of the two ways. There's two paths in Psalm 1. Uh, verses 1 to 3 explain one path, the way of the righteous. Uh, and verses 4 to 6 explain another path, the way of the wicked. This is often called the doctrine of the two ways, which works its way out into other parts of Scripture and also all kinds of other texts in the early Christian period. But right here at the beginning of Psalm 1, Psalm 1-2, 
It seems to make the point that the medium of revelation, the highest path to know God and to become intimately acquainted with Him, is none other than meditation upon His Torah. Now, what is Torah? Torah is not just the law of God, and it's a hard question to answer in light of Psalm 1, because we don't know exactly when Psalm 1 was composed or when it finally found its way here at the beginning of the Psalter. Is Torah the first five books of the Old Testament? Is Torah um, the law of God specifically? Uh, or maybe the book of Deuteronomy? What is Torah uh, for these ancient people who gathered the Psalms together? Um, it's safe to say, no matter how we come down on that, we won't chase that rabbit too far down the road, is that God's Torah is his instruction to God's people at any time it finds itself embedded in the canon of Scripture. You know, those books that are collected for our covenantal faith and life. Torah is the living speech of God, as indicated in Psalm 119. Torah is reviving when we meditate upon it, according to Psalm 19, verse 7. It's cheering to the soul, according to Psalm 19, verse 8. It has power. It radiates out from light and brightness, Psalm 119, 105, 130. These are the experiences in the revelation of God that bring a righteous man delight, happiness, enjoyment, Psalm 11, 24, Psalm 77, Psalm 92, Psalm 143, Psalm 174. And how is this Torah obtained? Through the soft murmuring out loud of God's word, according to the psalm, through meditation, according to verse 2. Perhaps meditation is the best way to translate this. But not only do we have the two ways that are discussed here with regards to the Torah, uh, we also have two kinds of people described. On the one hand, there is the righteous, the Zadikim. On the other hand, there are the wicked, the Rashaim. These are the two people that are described in the psalm. Uh, the righteous person takes his delight in God's word. He meditates upon it day and night. He is the truly fortunate, blessed person who chooses the way. Uh, that brings blessing. And emphatically contrasted with this, clearly on the surface of the psalm, is the wicked person, the Rashaim. And the psalmist takes pains to make this black and white contrast between the righteous on the one hand and the wicked on the other. And who is the wicked? The wicked are described as having a character of the mass of the lost who drift away. That is the outcome in life of the wicked according to the psalm. Verse 5 raises another important question about the wicked not standing in the judgment. Well, what's that mean? They're not in the congregation of the righteous standing in the judgment. Well, the wicked, according to the psalm, which is, remember, a preamble for the whole psalter, have also been found guilty before the Torah of God. So in contrast to the truly happy life of the righteous, the wicked have separated themselves from the direction or the way of God. And therefore, they're excluded from the sanctuary where Torah is expounded, either by self-motivation, because they don't bother to come, 
or by even being removed, if you will. One thinks of Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your hill? See, friends, the wicked hate the instruction of God in their heart of hearts. They devise their own principles for life, their own maxims for living. Therefore, they are excluded either by their own designer being removed necessarily from the community influenced by God's Torah. They are the ones removed from the worship of God. As Psalm 5, 4 and 5 says, quote, just a few songs later, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers, close quote. So we've seen the two ways described, um, the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. We've seen the two kinds of people described, the righteous, the zadakim, and the wicked, the rashaim. Now we look at a paradigmatic person who is described in this psalm. Let me explain what I mean. You've seen this stark contrast between the righteous and the wicked, their life and the paths they choose. But as one author has said, a very famous author, they are expressions in someone, and they definitely transcend human, psychological, and moral possibilities, close quote. You see, the picture in Psalm 1 of the righteous person bears the features of, to quote the same person a little farther down, the super individual, the paradigmatic person. You know what I mean by paradigm, the, the example, the ideal. But even the most righteous Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees, even a human being, a mere human being, who has striven to keep God's law to the uttermost and meditated day and night and, and uh, all the time from God's Torah and His law is not the kind of person described here. It never could be. Rather, the New Testament declares that Jesus Christ, whom God made our righteousness, Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, is the fulfillment of this picture in Psalm 1. He is truly the paradigmatic Zadokim righteous person. Because no mere human being can measure up to what's described here. Remember what Jesus declared to his disciples when they urged him to eat something. He said, and I quote John 4:34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Close quote. And therefore, Christian, you may recognize that in the congregation of that God of the New Covenant, you may see and experience a, a joyful, lifelong relationship to God in and through the scriptures, in and through meditating on God's word and his Torah, which are found to be life imparting and life bestowing, uh, even in their power uh, to salvation, even as described in Psalm 1. For in and, in and through him, that is Christ, you too may participate in this ever-fortunate, blessed manner of life and existence as a new creature, the perfectly righteous one, namely Jesus. What about Psalm 2? Psalm 2 is a great piece of poetry. The central thought of this psalm is the worldwide dominion of the Davidic king who will sit upon his throne 
forever and ever rule all the nations in perfect obedience, the highest among the kings of the earth. Psalm 2 is one of the most frequently quoted psalms in the New Testament. It can be considered a messianic psalm par excellence. Notice the first strophe, there's four. The Confederacy of the Nations, verses 1 to 3. In verses 1 to 2, the poet begins describing and mustering the mustering of a great revolt. The nations eager to cast off their allegiance to the ideal king. And notice the opening question that sets the tone for the entire song. Why do the nations rage? You know, kind of incredulity. Why would the nations rage against the authority and rule of this great king? And the verse 3 goes on. There are represented bombastic statements. And how is this rebellion interpreted by the earliest of Christians? Well, we read in the book of Acts, chapter 4, Luke's second gospel, if you will, verse 23 to 28. And I quote, On the release, Peter and John went back to their own people, and they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything, and then you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, your father David. Why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And they did what your power and will had decided beforehand would happen. Brothers and sisters, do you hear? The earliest of Christians understood that Psalm 2 should be applied as seeing the rebellions of the nations that's described in Psalm 2 as fulfilled by the opposition to Jesus by Herod, by Pontius Pilate, by the Gentiles, and even by some in Israel. So too, it's a natural extension of the application of that song. That when you draw a line in the sand and take a stand for God and his word, even and especially in this age, not just in countries as we were talking about before with students who are serving uh, in countries where the state has turned bestial, and threaten not only to imprison them and have imprisoned them, let alone to kill them, but also even in our own country and other countries where we take a stand in this agitated age to stand up for God and His Word, and often that's construed as hate speech, perhaps as a hate crime down the road. Um, but this applies. There is a transcendent power in Jesus who sits on the throne and indeed rules over all creation, even though we don't see that rule fulfilled yet. And then we go to the second strophe. What's well, God's reaction to the rebellious attitude? We see this in verses 4 to 6. God mocks their puny efforts. By contrast, notice that God is enthroned, rendered in the ESV, he who sits in the heavens vis-a-vis what we just read about, these rulers bombastically trying to throw off the constraints of God who's in their midst. In other words, the only laughing matter here is the arrogance of the wicked. 
And then when we come to verse 6, the subject died is put right up front. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. And sure, heaven triumphs over the arrogant and the proud. Those who exalt themselves will ultimately be abased. God confounds the wise, always in history. And what did the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 1.20? Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Or later in another epistle of Paul, Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Where is the wise? See, the only laughing matter here is the fools who don't walk according to God's way. You know what happens to a rooster when you cut off its head? I know that sounds like a abrupt segue. <laughs> what happens to a rooster when you cut off its head? It runs around. It makes a bloody mess. Is that rooster as good as dead? Isn't it fake talk complete that he will bleed out and fall over and collapse eventually? Absolutely. So too Satan and all his opinions. So his head has been cut off. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated by Jesus Christ. The gates of hell cannot prevail against what will be accomplished and what will necessarily come. The third trophy, the divine decree, verses 7 to 9. Here we see a divine decree, but what's it referring to? Some see this as some kind of hyperbolic royal rhetoric. If you've ever been in the British Museum or another museum where they have great artifacts and icons and statuary of ancient civilizations or inscriptions, lots of boasting goes on about the plunder of a king and the peoples that he subjugated. Because it's all royal exaggerated rhetoric. And so some people say, well, Israel never approximated this song, so that must be the same dynamic that's going on here. I don't think that's the case, though. Rather, this is prophecy. This is a prophecy, the Davidic covenant coming into its own, an expression based upon the promise made to David. Remember the Davidic covenant when Nathan came and spoke to David, 2 Samuel 7, 14 and following. When your days are over, David, and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be his father, and he will be my son. Now that I recount you language in Psalm 2, maybe at one time, have been practiced as a coronation, right? But it finds its homecoming, it finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ as a coronation rite. <laughs> when Jesus fulfills and inaugurates, or inaugurates and then fulfills his covenant and his kingship, which we don't see everything subjected underneath his feet now, do we? Oh, we will, and it shall come. How do I justify that? By the authority of God's word. Hebrews 1.5. The writer to Hebrews says, For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. 
not to any of the angels, not to any of the prophets, even though God had spoken before, but now his son has come. And the writer to Hebrews with apostolic authority undergirded by and carried along by the inspiration of the Spirit says, no, this applies to Christ. So we move on. And uh, maybe it's worth mentioning by way of application first uh, that this psalm equally applies to the church as we pray for our missionaries, even as the pastor prayed this, for this morning, as we support them with our finances, as we send them out to the ends of the earth. But not just to the ends of the earth. To the rockiest soils in North America. Places like Sonoma County. Like North Bay. Tough ground. You've grown since I was here last. But it's still tough ground. But Jesus will have his way and he will call in all his sheep. Fourth strophe, verses 10 to 12. Now the final appeal goes out to the nations. Be instructed, be warned. Verse 11 has proved very troublesome for interpreters through the century. Perhaps it should be rendered, rendered something like rejoice with trembling. Which is not so difficult to understand now that you understand the psalm, right? That you come in, you're ushered in before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's a kind of appropriate mixture coming into this royal court of someone so brave and awesome. And then verse 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. This is a sign of homage and submission paid to rulers. You may not pick it up. But actually it says, kiss the son, son being in Aramaic, not in Hebrew. So kiss the bar, like Barnabas, son of encouragement, not kiss the son, like Benjamin, son of my right hand. Why would that be the case? Who's the addressee in the song? The four nations who have not yet bowed the knee, those who want to cast off the courts and not submit to the king of kings. So not, why not speak to them in their language, in their lingua franca, in their international trade language, which was Aramaic at this time, even as Jesus cried out in his cry of dereliction, an old term for abandonment on the cross, in a kind of Hebraicized Aramaic. The language of the people, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that would resonate to the people who spoke Aramaic, you see the point. So in this high point in the song, uh, God condescends and baby talk to talk to them in their own language so it might resonate with their heart even as he speaks to us uh, in intimate language that we could understand. A few points of application and conclusion. Yes, uh, Westminster Seminary in California, we do believe in such a thing. <coughs> so. First of all, it should be evident that the deliberate placement of Psalm 1 as a preamble to the entire Psalter teaches us that the editors of the Psalter, and ultimately God, since he inspired them to do so, has transformed a collection of individual corporate prayers into an intellectual exercise. Not merely intellectual, 
But you see, God wants us to use our minds as we seek to find the quickest and best path to develop a relationship with him. And what better day when we're celebrating the Reformation to emphasize that? There should be no false dichotomy between engaging our minds to understand God's word and his relationship with us and instruction and prayer. Ultimately, it seems as if the Psalter was perfectly happy to let this tension leave and be left alone and sit there. What's the quickest path to climb? Study or public acts of piety, prayer? Well, that's a false dilemma. It's both. As Craig Troxell said in his recent book, With All Our Heart, Orienting Your Mind, Desires and Will Towards Christ, quote, our call is nothing short of loving the Lord our God with all our mind. Our thinking is closely related to the other chambers of our hearts. See, there's this integral, close relationship between engaging our mind in the things of God and engaging our heart in the things of God. Don't trust anybody who wants to drive wet between us. Kids, when your parents join you and encourage you, to study God's word, to memorize God's word, to be in attendance of the means of grace. And when your officers encourage you to do the same and be here to participate in the means of grace. And when you rise in the morning and discipline yourself even privately to be involved in the reading of God's you're doing something really good for your own soul. Don't believe anybody that would tell you otherwise. God, delight, he gave us he gave us this climactic gift to the human mind. And he expects us to use it in order to have familiar conversation and cordial attachment to him. Two, another application. We've seen the strand of supernatural otherworldliness that Psalm 2 has set before us in David building his kingdom, the ultimate uh, David, uh, Davidic king. All subsequent Davidic kings after David, leading to the ultimate expression of the Son of David, the true Son of David, namely Christ, who is bringing in the gospel of this highest good, the ultimate satisfaction for true liberty. Read, read, here's something I'll encourage you to do in using your mind. Read chapter 20 of the Westminster Confession of Faith on Christian liberty, perhaps the most eloquent high point of the confession. Not merely that you get to enjoy God's good creational elements this afternoon, yesterday, or throughout the week. You know what true Christian liberty is? Being delivered from the devil and all his opinions. Being delivered from the darkness and slavery of sin. And being delivered unto the freedom of the sons and daughters of God who can worship him without a guilty conscience. The seed of the serpent still rages. But he is bleeding out, and he shall bleed out. The gates of hell shall not prevail against God's construction design for his church. The climax of his dominion remains a future reality. However, it is an accomplished reality. Its manifestation will certainly come. Do not be a fool and gainsay it. It will come. 
Perhaps no better way to close than to see how Psalm 2 got to lights and give us a spoiler alert. Uh, spoiler alerts among humans, especially with regards to movies and that kind of thing, stories, that's not good for them. But in Scripture, God delights to give us spoiler alerts. Listen to Revelation as we close out, as it quotes or alludes to Psalm 2. Revelation 1.5 Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Revelation 2, 26-27 To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. Revelation 4.2 At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, and someone sitting upon it. Revelation 6, verse 16 and 17. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great is the day of their wrath that has come, and who can stand? Revelation 6. Lastly, Revelation 12. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Close quote. Children of God, in light of these truths, we should worship him, and we should praise him for the salvation he's bringing about for you and for many others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the revelation of your word that is indeed broader than all the heavens. We do thank you for these reminders about our most holy duties to discharge. And we pray that you would quicken us and help us to redouble our efforts, help us to persevere even though we do not see you uh, ruling round about us completely as you continue to subdue your enemies underneath your feet. Nevertheless, O Lord, by faith, we seize hold of the scriptures and the truths they teach, uh, that you are ruling from the heavens, and that you carefully are the king of the universe who cares so much for us, that you will not let a hair pass from our head, uh, that you will continue the good work that you have begun in us, and you will complete it by your grace, so that we may persevere and even enter into the world to come. Thank you for reminding us of these truths on this, your Lord's Day. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us as we continue to uh, go forward to the world to come and pilgrimage in this difficult and dark age. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.